This Rarecast is made possible by Global Genes, a leading education and advocacy organization that serves and promotes the needs of patients and families touched by rare and genetic disease. Since 2009, Global Genes has been building awareness, developing patient-focused education and advocacy tools, and funding patient care programs and critical research. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. A range of RNAi therapies are moving through clinical development and toward the market providing the promise of new ways to treat genetic diseases. Dicerna, which has a platform that allows for a unique delivery mechanism for targeting the liver with RNAi therapies, recently began dosing patients in an early-stage trial of its experimental RNAi therapy to treat hyperoxaluria, a rare genetic liver disease. We spoke to Doug Fambro, president and CEO of Dicerna, about the company's RNAi platform, what makes it unique, and what's ahead in its pipeline. Doug, thanks for joining us. Glad to uh, speak with you today. We're going to talk about Dicerna, its RNAi platform, and, and why these therapies hold promise for targeting rare diseases involving the liver. Let's start with RNAi itself. This is a technology that's getting some light shining on it as Elnylam is moving toward market with the, its first RNAi therapy. What is RNAi and what makes this a, a promising approach to treat genetic diseases? RNAi is a natural mechanism that exists in every cell in your body that your body uses to regulate genes and in certain circumstances to fight off viruses. What we're doing with RNAi and other companies that use RNAi to try to make pharmaceuticals, what we're doing is reprogramming that system to turn off selectively disease genes or genes that are inappropriately activated in disease. And in that way, we can provide benefits to patients. This is a technology that was discovered in about 20 years ago. The Nobel Prize was awarded in 2006 to the discoverers of RNA interference. It's since its discovery been recognized as potentially a very important mechanism because it's very powerful, it's very selective, and potentially extremely safe, giving you a targeted way to turn off an individual gene pretty much at will which is a great thing for a pharmaceutical, that sort of specificity. We've seen a, a lot of interest in RNAi drug developers targeting diseases involving the liver. What is it about the liver that makes this uh, such a fertile area for RNAi therapies? There are two things about the liver that make it a great starting point for using RNAi as a drug. And I do hope as the years go by that we expand the repertoire 
and are able to use the RNAi mechanism in other tissues as well. But the liver is a great starting point. The first reason is that the liver is so broadly involved in metabolism in the body and different kinds of diseases, both rare and common. A lot of metabolism, the sort of basic biochemistry of life, occurs in the liver. And so many rare diseases of metabolism are really problems of liver metabolism, and we can address them with RNAi that targets the liver. But beyond rare diseases, some of the most common viral infections, hepatitis B virus, for which probably a quarter of a billion people have an active infection worldwide, that's a liver virus. Uh, so-called cardiovascular disease. I use the word so-called because the metabolism that creates the cholesterol and the lipids that go on to clog arteries and cause congestive heart failure, that's all going on in the liver. And if you want to treat that, you treat the liver. So there are a number of other disease areas I could go into, but that's reason number one. There's a lot of medical applicability that we can address with RNAi in the liver. The second reason is that the liver is just naturally more open to taking up pharmaceuticals. It's uh, the normal job of the liver, one of the many jobs of the liver, is to clean the blood. And so it's bathed in serum, and the cells are usually taking up things from the bloodstream, often to metabolize and, and, and uh, get rid of them uh, as a waste product. This sort of cleaning house of the, of the body function of the liver means it's much more amenable to taking up foreign substances, like the RNAi-based drugs that we're using. So between it being more accessible and it being broadly applicable for disease, it's a great starting point for RNAi. Discern is developing a platform it calls Galaxy. What, what is Galaxy, and does this make Discern unique within the world of RNAi therapies? Our Galaxy platform has some unique characteristics that we think make it an ideal way to use RNA, RNAi as a drug. Our, the Galaxy name for our platform refers to the fact that we use a particular sugar, and sugar is known as Galmac, and we conjugate it on an extended form of uh, an RNAi-inducing drug, and, that, and that's where the GAL-XC name comes from. This allows us to target our molecules specifically to the liver. This is an approach that other companies are taking as well, a small number of companies. Given the wide range of diseases that we can go after, I think it's nice to have a bunch of different companies using the tech, this type of technology. We have some specific proprietary features that we think make our drugs more active and likely even safer in what is generally a, an already a very safe class of pharmaceuticals. We, we talked about the, the, the liver and why it's a, a fertile target. There, there have been challenges with RNAi in terms of targeting therapies and in terms of their half-life beyond the liver. Are, are you able to address this at all with your technology and, and to what extent are you looking beyond the liver for potential indications at this point? The Galaxy platform and the Galnac sugars in particular have solved what was the biggest problem for RNA interference drugs. In the past, uh, and the, the drug you referred to from albylum uh, is of this class as well, um, the RNAi, uh, RNA molecules that induce RNAi that we use as, as a drug, they have to be delivered into cells. The Galmac sugar allows 
those molecules to be taken up directly by the liver through one of the liver's uptake mechanisms. The historical ways of delivering RNAi relied on other things, uh, polymers or lipids that induced cells to take them up. And those polymers and lipids brought with them potential toxicities. There have been ways to thread the needle there, and alnylam's drug that is likely to receive FDA approval in the coming months is able to thread the needle there with a lipid-based delivery vehicle. Um, but there have been a lot of drugs that failed in the clinic because they didn't get taken up well enough at safe concentrations to be used effectively as pharmaceuticals. But the Galmax sugar, which we use in the Galaxy system, solves the problem for the liver and utilizes very safe natural sugar through a natural uptake mechanism. It will likely be more challenging with other tissues to have this strategy work in uh, you know, the kidney or the lungs. However, as we advance the potency of our RNAi-inducing molecules and explore what uptake systems are relevant, I think you will see over time more and more tissues have solutions for delivering these RNAi-based therapeutics, and the liver will ultimately just be the starting point for a drug class that extends well beyond the liver. Your lead therapeutic is targeting primary hyperoxaluria type 1. What is it? How rare is it? What's the progress of the disease? And, and what, what treatments are available today? Primary hyperoxaluria is a family of disorders that I know most people have not heard of. And that's probably a good thing because they're really very serious and uh, it's quite unfortunate to have one of these genetic conditions. These are inborn errors of metabolism, and the metabolism is all occurring in the liver. And due to these errors of metabolism, the liver makes too much of a compound called oxalate. And you can see that in the name of the disease, hyperoxaluria, too much oxalate in the urine. Now, the excess oxalate that's made by the liver is something your body has no way to deal with. And so it's just released and excreted in the urine. The problem is that it's not very soluble. So as the oxalate is concentrated by the kidneys and the urine, it forms crystals. And those crystals destroy the kidneys progressively over time. Once the kidneys start to decline, of course, the body is less able to remove the oxalate. So it builds up around the body and you get oxalate crystals being deposited in the skin and the bones and the eyes. And it's an extremely debilitating condition. So you have patients who are going to liver um, kidney failure because of the oxalate crystals and then getting uh, very broad tissue damage due to the oxalate crystals elsewhere in the body. And ultimately, these patients will need a liver transplant and also, of course, a kidney transplant because their kidneys have failed. That's uh, extremely debilitating, and as you can imagine, it's also extremely expensive for the medical system to treat. It is fortunately quite rare. Probably between three and eight people per million people in the population that are afflicted with primary hyperoxaluria. And I think that's uh, probably uh, very true across most regions of the world. There's some variation. It's less common in uh, people of African descent, uh, um, not necessarily more common in, in people of European descent, certainly found in Japan and China. So it's a it's a rare but very serious disease that's found globally. There are three forms of it. Type 1 is the most serious, but there's a type 2 and a type 3. And then 
there are a number of cases that don't fit any of those three types, so they may define a, a type four. Our treatment addresses all forms of primary hyperoxaluria, uh, and if you add them all together, then you probably got two to three times as many patients as I quoted since I was just giving you the type one numbers. And why did you choose it as your first indication? We chose primary hyperoxaluria for a variety of reasons. And one of the reasons is that there is no treatment for this disease, so it really is crying out for a solution. Uh, but another reason is that it's a perfect match for our RNAi technology. It's very straightforward for us to turn off the enzyme that makes oxalate. And as it happens, this is an enzyme that you can very easily live without. So by turning off this enzyme, we don't cause any negative consequences. You can live without this enzyme. In fact, it's well known that there are quite a few people who already naturally have a deficiency of this enzyme. And in turning off the enzyme that makes oxalate, you remove the damaging chemical in this disease. In fact, with the primary hyperoxaluria's, all of the symptoms are due to oxalate. There are no other negative effects of those uh, genetic mutations. So we should treat the entirety of the disease while inducing no other side effects. And as I explained at the outset, this is metabolism that occurs entirely within the liver. And so our liver-targeted RNAi therapy uh, that the Galaxy uh, platform provides um, fully addresses the excess production of oxalate. So we think it's a, a perfect case, and it's in a disease that's crying out for a solution. And what exactly is the RNAi therapy doing to turn off this enzyme? Well, this gets to how the RNA interference pathway within the body works. I said at the beginning that RNA interference is a metabolic pathway uh, that the body uses to control gene expression. The way it works is that there's a set of proteins inside the cell, and they recognize the messenger RNA associated with an individual gene. Now, as your listeners probably know, the cell has its genetic DNA that stores the heritable material in the nucleus, and that's read out as messenger RNA, which is then translated into the enzymes and proteins that uh, make up the cells in the body. Uh, this messenger RNA is what is targeted by the RNA interference pathway. And what our drug does is it uh, programs the RNAi pathway to specifically go after the gene that we want to turn off and destroy the messenger RNA. In our case, that's an enzyme called LDHA. It's the enzyme responsible for making oxalate. It's also not essential uh, within uh, cellular metabolism, so cells can live without it. And so we program the system to destroy the messenger RNA of the LDHA gene. And that means that no LDHA protein will be made, and that means that no oxalate will be made. You just dosed your first human patient in a phase one study. What do we know from the preclinical testing of the drug? Well, the metabolic pathway that's involved with primary hyperoxaluria is something that's common to all vertebrates. It's part of the way your body deals with the breakdown of collagen. And, of course, everybody's breaking down collagen, you know, every hour of every day. And all vertebrates are as well. So we know that animals that have primary hyperoxaluria, and we have mice that carry the same mutations as human patients, primary hyperoxaluria. They uh, exhibit very much the same disease that humans with 
the primary hyperoxal of rehab. And we can completely address the excess oxalate production in the mouse model of disease. And it is does appear to be entirely safe to do so. So it's really based on this mouse uh, model of primary hyperoxaluria that gives us confidence. But we've also taken the step of working with human liver cells in a tissue culture dish, and we can induce primary hyperoxaluria in these human liver cells in a tissue culture dish, and in, in that situation, we can essentially cure the cells in the dish, uh, if you will. That gives us confidence that as we uh, start giving this drug to patients, we'll be able to reduce the oxalate expression, and hopefully turn it off entirely and provide benefit. And it's very exciting to be at the point where we're starting the human testing. And in 2018, we should really know whether we're turning off uh, oxalate in the, in the patients. We certainly expect to, uh, but that's, of course, why you do the clinical trials, and we look forward to seeing the data. You're using what you've called a, a novel trial design to speed development of the drug. What is it, and, and what makes it novel? Well, um, I will perhaps aren't the first to do it, but it is uh, a, a little bit unusual. We are uh, doing a combination of volunteers who are healthy to ensure safety and then very rapidly testing the same level of, of uh, drug in patients with primary hyperoxaluria. It's often the case that uh, drugs go through several months of safety testing and healthy volunteers before they're given to a patient. In our case, uh, we're going to give a low level of drug to healthy volunteers, and then we'll give that same level to patients while we give the next higher dose to volunteers. And then when we show that, we'll uh, do that next higher dose in patients. That allows us to cut the development time almost in half in um, achieving an initial readout, both of safety and of the ability to turn off oxalate. If all goes well, what's the timeline for the drug and, and how, how long might it be to get to market? It's always difficult to say uh, how long it's going to take something to get to market. Uh, pharmaceutical development can be frustratingly slow. But by the end of uh, about the third quarter, so let's say the end of September 2018, we should have a very good understanding of our ability to turn off oxalate production in patients that have primary hyperoxaluria. And depending on that data, it has the potential to move very quickly through uh, the advanced stages of development and reach the market. Under a best-case scenario, this drug could be available in 2021. And what's behind your 101 and your pipeline, and how soon might you advance other compounds into the clinic? Well, we have two other compounds that are fairly close behind the uh, primary hyperoxaluria drug. The second one is about six months behind, uh, but we're, we're, we, we keep our cards close to our chest on that one. That addresses another genetic disease, not, not quite as serious as pH, but certainly very serious and uh, a little bit more common. The uh, third drug, which will start human testing uh, in about a year, uh, at the latter part of 2018, uh, that addresses a much more common disease. That addresses hepatitis B virus. And as I mentioned earlier, about 250 million people worldwide have an active HBV infection, making it one of the globe's most pressing disease concerns. Currently, it is very poorly treated, and most people just live with the infection and, and with the damage it's doing to, its, uh, to the liver. 
And for that one, we uh, we are hoping to uh, have an effective treatment and potentially the first ever effective treatment. Doug Fabro, President and CEO of Dicerna. Doug, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.